0: Hey there, Po listeners. Let's take a quick break to talk about pay.com.au, a game changer in the payment solutions arena. Are you a business owner bogged down by a cumbersome payment process and you know reward points? Well, pay.com.au has got you covered. With their platform, you can process payments faster, easier, and with better rewards than ever before, earning points with every business payment. Whether you're paying invoices, employees, your BAS statements, or simply looking to manage your business expenses more efficiently, pay.com.au is your go-to platform. Turn your reward points into business class flights or gift cards to incentivize and retain your staff. Check them out at pay.com.au and take your payment game to the next level. Welcome to another Principal of Hospitality podcast. I'm your host, Sean DeVries. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. Principal of Hospitality has been developed to tell the stories of professionals within the dynamic world of hospitality. We're straight talking, ethically minded and a reliable online source of information and inspiration for people in the hospitality industry. Now with today's show. Today we're joined by Adrian Richardson, one of Australia's culinary icons and the mastermind behind Melbourne's La Luna Bistro. With over 35 years in the kitchen and a face well known from shows like Ready Steady Cook and Good Chef Bad Chef, Adrian has carved a unique path in his culinary world. From barbecuing in the kitchen during a gas crisis to pioneering the chef TV personality role, Adrian's journey has been anything but ordinary. Adrian, fantastic to have you on the show, mate
1: good to go. The red button is on. The red button is on. uh, You're in full control and Um. I better watch my P's and Q's. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Adrian, awesome to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Now, let's start out
0: in the beginning. When I've done so much research about you, obviously I've known about you for such a long time and we've had a bit of
1: a lead time before knowing that we're going to record today. guy that's going to be following me around and chasing me up? I'm um, that guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've had the, I've had the police <laughs> contacting me. There's this guy called <laughs> Sean that's, you know, creeping me out. Yeah. That's yeah. absolutely me. And I've been super excited about today and there's, there's so many different
0: ways that we could take it. But I always like to start with the first question about why did you get into hospitality?
1: Why are you here now? Look, there's a couple of reasons. One is hospitality goes back generations in my family. My grandfather on my father's side was it was a chef. He graduated from Westminster College in London in 1932. I've got his graduation certificate. Wow! So he was a chef through in England and France, and then after the war came to Australia, and he was had that that real classical French training in Australia where they were still eating mutton chops and frozen <laughs> peas. And so that's always been a, a strong emphasis around food in my family. My mother's side is Italian, so always had food around me but when I was 16 I was going to a local grammar school uh, an expensive school dad kept telling me about it and look I didn't do that well my I was put up a year because my brother and I are 11 months apart so I always struggled at school from the Mm. beginning and then at about the beginning of year 11 my services were no longer required at school so (laughs) and and I went and dad said look mate what are you going to do with your life you just you got to do something so I went got my pilot's license so at 16 I was flying solo and I had to get a job to pay for the lessons got a job in a kitchen I'd always done a little bit of kitchen hand work here and there so I got a job in a kitchen and then decided look if I want to be a pilot or whatever I want to do better finish school re-enrolled myself into the local high school at the year level I was supposed to be at so I did year 11 I did really well I remember bringing my pass my my report home to my dad he sat there for 15 minutes without a word because I got straight A's and he's what spent all this money and and so he was very happy and by the end of I did my VCE and by the end of it the flying fell by the wayside I, I was working in the weekends in the kitchens mm. and I just love kitchens. I finished my VCE and that night I started my apprenticeship and I have never looked back. I belong in a kitchen. In my world, I'm really happy there. What did you enjoy about being a kitchen hand? Because that's a dy- that's a dynamically hard role. What did you enjoy about the energy of that kitchen? Uh, kitchens are—they're just—it's like pirate life. They say that, but you say you got to prep everything, then service starts, and then you got to you've got to hold your hold it all together, get all the food out, serve everyone, then pack it all down again. And it's a real camaraderie. I just love being around food. My whole mm. everything I, from when I wake up in the morning, I love the food, but just the ordered society. A kitchens a very disciplined place. There's a hierarchy. If you do really well, you get rewards. If you don't, you get a slap over the knuckles. And in my day, it was a real, it was a real slap over the knuckles. But so I really like the discipline. And if you really want, if you really work hard at it, you can do really well. But my grandfather, because we talked about cooking and being in kitchens, and he said that he was in the he was in the military in the Second World War, and he said there's more discipline in the Savoy kitchen than there ever was in the military. And it's true to this day. Mm. A lot of it's self discipline, but th- that sort of yeah, I love that. I love that environment. Yeah, you' You're all battling together, the team, to against the customers, to, to make it all work and get it out on the tables and have a great night. That's that to me is is a great thing. So, how did it evolve that? How did La Luna
0: start? Because obviously you're celebrating 25 years of La Luna this year, so congratulations! Thank you. But obviously I'd known you from that, but also ready Steve, Cook, and obviously with Good Chef Bad Chef as well. Like,
1: how did La Luna actually start out? Look, I'd always from from the beginning, I'd always want to have my own venue. That was in the back of my mind. So I went and worked around the world and lots of places, and and then well, I got back to Melbourne. I think I was 28, 29, and I was just sick of working for bastards. <laughs> I just had enough. It's, all this, in my day it was a. Screaming and yelling and violence and just I just I just wanted to go out on my own and do my own thing and that's where I set La Luna. To me, it was I just wanted a small eating house. That's why I called it a bistro, which is mm. an eating house. I wanted it to be a sort of place where you could come in and have a little bowl of pasta that it was handmade pasta, a little piece of fish, a little piece of meat. Come in once a week or for a little bite to eat and a glass of wine, or come in for a three course meal with your friends and family. That's the sort of place I wanted it, and it grew from there. Twenty five years. It's I, I tell people I started when I was twelve. That's why I think so <laughs> <You> but, <do. laughs> but, but it's just been a, it's the machine. We call it the mothership. That's where the office is above the kitchen there. It just keeps running. We have customers that have been coming for 25 years. Mm. It's just a great, I call it a little place. It seats 110 people inside. So it's bigger than you think. Mm. That's, that's me in general. But, but it just, it's just one of those things that it just keeps on growing. And I just love the place. And having my own venue, I do what I want. I serve the food that I want. I serve the booze that I want. I have the style of service. It's the look that I want. The kitchens run the way I want. If I want to do things like we dry-age meat and we have a huge dry-aging cool room at the back of the restaurant. And if I was a a really smart businessman, I'd buy in box meat and have the same as everyone else. But I love dry-aging meat. We make all our own prosciutto, all our own salami. I do that because I love it, because Mm. I can. Mm. And to me, that's the driving force.
0: What have you changed in the actual bistro since the late 90s. What's been the biggest change that
1: you've made? Oh, it's a very good question. That one, the refit when I first started, uh, mm-hmm. I'd painted the walls. Uh, I did the interior design, and just so we're very clear, I am probably—I'm a great cook. Interior design is not my uh, forte. <laughs> so, I, I, we, after about a year, I remember some of my friends were saying, hey, Richard, it looks the place looks shit out. So you need to do something." We changed a few things, and then we had a big interior design, a uh, big change of the whole place—a uh, re, refit—at mm. uh, about twelve years, and it looks beautiful. So it's still got that look about it. I need to keep touching it up every now again because it just gets the place gets flogged so you need to keep touching it up but that was one of the biggest things I think but also me stepping out of the foot full kitchen full-time it got to a stage with all of the other commitments that I picked up along the way that I needed to run it with a head chef who mm. was responsible for it and I needed the right sort of person for me, for me to let go of that part was probably the biggest thing because I controlled everything and to hand it over to someone else who could still do what I wanted but still let them have a say that was probably one of the hardest things for me. When did you start to make that transition? Probably, probably about fourteen years ago. Okay. The sous chef that I was working with, a guy called Michael Slade. He's got a restaurant not far. He's a lovely bloke. We got on really well. He worked for me for six years, and he came wow. back and worked for uh, another year as well before he started his place. He just got me. He understood me. I understood him. If he said he could do something, he could do it. If he couldn't do it, he would tell me. Just one of these people that you, you can. Yeah, you, I, I trusted him, and mm. he helped me let go. I think that was probably it was <laughs> more. more He's, he was the therapist for me, helping me let go yep. and me trusting he can do this. He can have his own way and he would still do the things that I want and he would show me, hey, this is a great dish I'm working on. Like that. That's great. I, mm. you know, it's better than what I would do. Okay, that's when I finally let go.
0: When, How did you decide to make that actual transition though? Or was it like the media was – becoming a bit more a part of your mo and what you're doing and then you decided that maybe i can't be there seven days a week and focus anymore what was the what was the tipping point
1: i'd go away for a couple of weeks and film boys weekend and then come back again i'd I'd go to sydney to film uh, ready steady cook for a couple of days so it got to a stage where they they couldn't i couldn't have them rely on me all the time and i had to take myself off the roster so that they could run a team and whether i was there or not the place ran the same when i was in, in there i'd be in the kitchen I'd be doing stuff and they loved it because I'd just do heaps of prep for them and fillet fish and do all the butchery and I'd love doing that but when I wasn't there they still needed to be able to operate without me so that's when it changed awesome
0: how was it doing the media stuff? Like, how did that
1: actually come about? Look, when I first opened the restaurant in 98, which seems so long ago, that's when like <laughs> dinosaurs roamed the earth. Um, it's weird when you say I, 90s. I, I know. Okay, probably early on, probably when I started and for the first few years, I'd get a bit of a media attention. There wasn't as many restaurants as there yeah. was in those days. I had a bit of attention, you know, attention. I do radio and, and stuff. And, and then I came across Justine May, who started a business called Chefs Inc. It's now Talent Inc. So she represented chefs. And so she came and we had a little chat and she said, look, I, I can help you with this stuff. So we just started and started from a little commercial and little spots on Bert Newton and then Ready Steady Cook came along and it's grew from there. The first few things, when it comes to public speaking and being in front of a camera, there's similar sort of things. So at the start, you're really nervous and mm. it takes a while, but you've got to work at things. You know, if you're not good at something, you can either give it up or you can just bust your bottom <laughs> until you get it. And that's what I do. I'm that sort of guy. If you tell me, if you don't want me to do something, Oh, sorry. If you want me to do something, tell me I can't do it. That's yes. it. It's done. So that's <laughs> just how my mind works. And, and it took a while to get uh, good at it. And and I am pretty natural at it. I think so. It's grew from there. Did you do any kind
0: of outside training in order to get your the, the media personality part right? Or was it just rinse and repeat,
1: just learn all the time as you would have done with being a chef? I'd learn. I suppose I got some really good advice from some producers and directors in the beginning. One of the things that they said is, be yourself on camera because I try and do, do things and maybe be someone else or try and be a bit uppity or whatever it was. And one of the directors came and said, Adrian, be yourself. That's what we want. So we know you, so be yourself because the camera will always find you. So if you try and hide and mm. try and act I'm not a great actor so if you try and act and do something else it, it, it'll always find you so be honest and be true to the camera and it will it will look after you never lie to the camera because it'll catch you <laughs> out <laughs>
0: we had Matt Galinsky on the podcast the other week and talking about the Ready Steady Cook days How was that time for you? Did you find that, was that just super,
1: super fun? Was that really challenging during that time? It was hard work because they give you the mystery bag and what, so they bring out the mystery bag at the start and there was all the stuff and what you didn't see was they cut it for about five minutes. So you just got a couple of minutes to have a look at everything and then they'd start again. So it's not like you had an hour or Mm. they showed you beforehand. You had a couple of minutes to go through it. So you had to be quick on your toes mm. and you actually had 20 minutes to cook it so there wasn't they, they didn't extend it so you really had to bust your chops and you'd be sweating at the end of it you'd be running around and try trying to do things. so it was really good in that aspect because you'd have to think on your feet and if you've got a good repertoire of dishes in your head and you've got you know 10-15 years of experience you can really do really well and you'll see that with the guys that are on it try to do that with some of the guys that come off these that we call them contestants that come off these cooking shows. They've got three dishes up their sleeves. Put them on on Ready, Steady, Cook. They fall apart. You you can just (laughs) see it. So, I mean, but working with some of the chefs, some of the the other chefs were on. It was great because you'd see what they do, Mm. and so you'd use it a couple of episodes later on. So we taught each other a lot. It was really. Exciting because you had to work your, your bottom off, and hopefully your your offside the, the contestant that came down from the studio organ, or, or audience could actually do something. Because if you if they couldn't, that's it. You're you're on your own, Tiger. But it was really good, and I got to meet a lot of these chefs. And I'd fly up to Sydney, which was always exciting. And then Manu and I would go out and, and party, and it, it was great. This was before he became really famous, because yeah. we could actually go somewhere without getting harassed. But we'd, we'd go out and then party, and we'd all we'd have a great time. It was really good fun. But you had to work the next day. So You didn't want to have too much of a hangover.
0: Yeah, I bet. How did you assess that contestant's skill set? Going next to you. When I talked about it with Matt, he's like, Oh, I just assess it really well, and maybe they had knife skills, or maybe they would just be picking
1: parsley for the thing. <laughs> he just it so quickly. First, ask, Can you cook? Oh, I can't cook anything. My wife does <laughs> all the cooking. Okay, then you know you're shot. Yep. Sometimes we, we did an episode with firemen, and, and people don't know this, but firemen, they cook all the time because they go into the station for two and a half days or whatever it is. And there's usually, this cooking is a big thing for them. So if, if the, the fireman come, Oh, I cook heaps of stuff. It's great. You're going to get heaps of help. You just ask them what they can do, and they'll tell and you can see pretty much as soon as they pick up a knife you start them off on something simple and if they get that done quickly oh great i've got another list of jobs off you go Uh, but yeah just if you get the i can't cook anything my wife does everything i boil i burn water that's it just stand there and look pretty or you always get them to do something better yeah the more help you got the better but that's what that's what it is in kitchens. See, you're working. You might be in a kitchen with two people, and that person has a flat tire on the way in, or something happens. You're on your own. You just have to you just have to fly. That's what kitchen life is all about. Yeah, for sure.
0: Is it is it hard to balance the media stuff that you're doing with regards with running uh, an amazing hospitality group like you are, like to keep that
1: balance there? Look, I work less than I ever did. Now I've got really good people, and this my business hospitality. It's all about people. It's people management and having the right people doing what they're supposed to be doing. Mm. And my little thing: every kitchen I walk into, hey, getting on, guys, everything alright? Have you got what you need? Have you got your equipment? Have you got the staff? What are your problems? Mm. Tell me now so I can fix it. So if you come in with that attitude, give the people what they need to do their jobs, and and just keep an eye on that. And that seems to work pretty well. Look, I've, I've Linda, who's been with me for twenty three years. Wow, she runs the diary. I'm terrible with electronic. Dose. I have a whiteboard. I have a whiteboard with a calendar on it and oh, I'll put things awesome. in there. That's me. And she'll send me photos of it if I'm interstate so I can see what's going on. That's so good. And she'll send me text messages of what I do. So I'm a little bit analogue and old-fashioned with that. But but look, I've got really good people around me that keep me grounded which is really important. One of the things you find with media is you start thinking, or oh, I don't, people might think they're a little bit better than everyone else because they might be more known and recognised. You're not you're just a regular joe that's it you keep your feet on the ground mm-hmm. if people recognize you want a photo great be charming and then move on but if you start thinking you're better than anyone else you're done <laughs> people will leave walk away in droves it's just not it's, it's not a real thing it's just media yeah
0: is it hard for you to go out and go to a new restaurant when maybe you're you're not there on a media gig or anything like that or, or maybe a special release you just want to understand that restaurant and really get to know it but people are going to recognize you right like you you're a very recognizable kind of character. Is it hard to just fly underneath the radar and enjoy a hospitality experience without people coming up to you? No.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, no, it's just it's not. Look, rare, rarely, sometimes I'll go to a new place and I do eat out a lot. I've been, I've got a couple of venues in Brisbane, so mm. I'm, I am eat out in Brisbane a lot. I've got a venue in Geelong, so I've been eating out there. So you might walk in, sit down and no one knows. And then the the maitre d' or the manager or the chef, or that's that's Adrian. Uh, you do get recognised. And look, it is really nice because I feel like I get really well looked after. People go out of their way and it's really charming. These are my people. This is my, my, my colleagues, my peers, so... I'm always charming, always polite, I always tip well these are my people so I've got to make sure and look, sometimes I go to a place and it's not great it's not mm. great, it's, it's a little bit fluffy, but unless, I'm always charming about it, I never say anything rude, I might have a little whisper in someone's ear if I need to, sure. if I can give some constructive criticism, So sometimes people will ask me, but I'm always say nice things always be, when you go see the chef be respectful to the chef because that chef's underlings are around him so it makes him look good or her look good so you always try and be polite and lovely to everyone and if I need to I'll make a phone call to the owner and say hey I was in the other night and this happened and that happened just want to let you know and I hope people do the same things and they do the same things to me. Awesome. How did the opportunities in Brisbane Hmm. start out? Look, I've been doing some work in Brisbane, some events, events and things for varieties. It's a children's charity yep. and I've yep. been doing that for a number of years. Fantastic. We raised a lot of money for some very important people. Hold on. And that was, I really got a hang of it. And I got to meet a guy, Chris Higgins, who ran a restaurant called Cha-Cha. Um, mm. He ran in Brisbane and in Darwin. Yep. And he's an ex-copper, salt of the earth, knockabout bloke. And we got on really well. We just would catch up for beers and go for wine. He'd be my dinner date sometimes because I want to go out somewhere. And we'd always have one or two too many. Oh, we should have a restaurant up here. Yeah, yeah. La Luna'd work really well in Brisbane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Went on for years and we have a bit of a laugh about it. And then a couple of years ago, just before COVID, he rang me and said, Richard, you wouldn't believe it. We've got an opportunity. I went up there. That one fell through. But then he said... Yeah, I know that one's fallen through, but I've got another one, an even better one. So we went to that venue, and it's really good. It was operating as a restaurant already, and it had a whole rooftop terrace next to it, mm. which we had the ability to turn into a rooftop terrace bar. It took a while because we had that two-year holiday that we had here in Victoria. Yes. um. Uh-huh. <laughs> But we, we opened last November and it's been hammering. I, I can't believe how busy it is up there. And then a few weeks ago, we opened the Avery's, which is the Terrace Pass. That's how we got into it. It just stumbled over an opportunity in myself, Chris and Liam, who's uh, is a lawyer, which is really handy because he's really good with, with contracts and all of that stuff. Yes. And uh, he does. he's really good with numbers as well. So he runs that side of it. I've learned a lot about it as well. So we, with the three of us together, pooling our resources, and we actually have a lot of fun doing it so I'm really enjoying that part of it. I've never been in partnership before but this is my first and this is my first partnership and I'm learning a lot about myself and how to how to sell my ideas to my partners where for yeah. me it's been a benevolent, benevolent dictatorship down here so <laughs> yes. I can get away with anything but up there it's, it's a different thing and I'm learning a lot and enjoying
0: it a lot. Does it remind you of your transition going into media and then taking a step back step aside, I should say, not step back, step aside at La Luna and and then doing, allowing someone else to
1: take the reins a bit. Is there similarities in those two things? It is is up there. It's a complete team and they do Mm. everything. What what I'm finding is I'm bringing my expertise and my experience up there. Liam is not a hospitality person. Chris has run restaurants up there from the front of house perspective. Mm. And I come from a kitchen perspective and many years of running restaurants in Melbourne. So together we nut things out on the table and yeah, We've got some good ideas, and and some things to be. I'll just say no, we're not doing that because I know that's not going to work. But that, but it, it works really well, and we've actually, if if you really. If you're really sold on an idea, you have to sell it to two other people. So you really need to back yourself. And look, if it's a half-assed thought, yeah, move on. And the same with them. If they come up with some crackpot idea, they have to sell it and they have to be, they have to back it. And that's what's really good because in anything that's this just half-assed, like I said, it just gets pushed aside. Yeah, it's really enjoyable working with other people.
0: It's interesting with Brisbane at the moment, I really want to get your insights on Brisbane, but it's a really smart, I I think it's a really smart play by you because obviously Charles is an institution in regards with Eagle Street Pier, that's the one you're talking about, right? I used to run a restaurant around the corner from that so i know how busy that restaurant was, but going into there with a person who's had that restaurant and then, evolved it like it just seems to know that brisbane market seems a really
1: smart play by yourself yeah and, and he, chris is real well connected he's he can talk to anyone mm. and he's just everyone that walks in the door he knows really well and up there it's a different type of clientele um i find it's a very different place and it's almost like a i'll use the word country town in a way because it's so friendly and yes. nice whereas melbourne's too cool for school and so spread out brisbane's a lot smaller in, in a lot of ways and vibrant and it Exciting, and Brisbane people, I think, demand the good stuff. They want Melbourne and Sydney stuff. Agree, and they'll put their money behind it. They will frequent good venues, and they'll throw their money down and keep them going. So, I, I really think Brisbane's. I don't want to say it. Don't tell anyone, just you and I. <laughs> Brisbane's a place to go, land of opportunity up there. And I know there's a few guys are moving up there to do things. And I, I just think it's got so much going for it. It's a great place, and I really enjoy it. It's all summertime's too hot for me. It's mm. just I'm just we're getting into something, so it's really hot for me but I'll put up with it because I just love the place and I love the people up there. Yeah, for sure. When I started working
0: up there probably about 20 years ago when I first uh, moved there for a little period, like the people, my joke was they're so laid back, they're horizontal. Like (laughs) it it is so chilled out and relaxed in Brisbane. Yep. Why do you think so many Melbourne brands are now going to Brisbane and not going to Sydney first, Adrian? Because it is a collective comment that I'm getting from Melbourne hospitality venues that they're if they're not in Sydney already, they're not going to Sydney, they're going to Brisbane. Why do you think that's happening? I want you to think of
1: uh, Sydney is like Collingwood. You, you know what <laughs> I mean? We, we hate Sydney. You yes. know, we hate Sydney. We don't care anything about <laughs> them. We want them to lose all the time. Yes. That, that, that's one thing. But I, I think um, Sydney, for Melbourne people trying to break into Sydney, there, there's a bit of attitude. I, I just feel that there's some Sydney people coming into Melbourne and you can see the attitude. It, it, it's nothing. It, it doesn't mean anything. But I think there's a lot of smart Operators in Sydney, there the you know, Merivale Group would be an mm. example of that. They're smart operators; they've got it nailed. They've got the whole city wide. They own everything. They do everything. They've got control over it. Whereas Brisbane's, it's like the wild west. If if you come with a great idea, Brisbane people, yeah, yeah, come along, b- bring your stuff. So that's what I think Brisbane's got for it. It's just a beautiful city as yeah. well. It's I just love it up there. Sydney, I, I love Sydney. It's a great place. It's a rabbit. What to get from one place to the other? Mm. It's just all over the place. It's expensive. Mm. It's a lot of things. Brisbane's the, the, the Brisbane's the promised land. <laughs> <laughs> Are you thinking there's going to be? I know it's super
0: early days, but you thinking there's going to be more opportunities up for you because the obviously there's going to be a lot of development and investment because the Olympics in '32, right? So I imagine food and beverage is going to go off its head in in the Brisbane and surrounding areas. Are you thinking about more opportunities in Brisbane, or
1: I'm always on the lookout for opportunities, and and look, I have been for the last probably 20 years to. Mm to do stuff one of the things for me it's got to be a smart op- opportunity and I've had many options to get involved with some really sketchy operators A bit, and uh, yeah, I'm just thinking if I had have got in bed with them it would just disasters so I'm very choosy about it but with the guys I've got in Brisbane if an op- another opportunity came up yeah we'd look at it we'd dissect it and pull it apart and if it's a, if it's a go we'd make it happen in Melbourne don't know. If something else comes up in Melbourne, I'll give it a go. The Bouvier, which is my other mm. venue in Melbourne, I bought the building. So I bought the building and that was one of the things that I really wanted to do. If I was going to expand in Melbourne, i buy buy the building, buy the capital and, and make it work. So that's what I did there. I'd probably do the same if I opened another venue in Melbourne, but I'm finding... Any opportunities that come up have to be in a situation where I've got partners that I can lean on so we work together mm-hmm. to make it happen. I don't think I could slog it out in the kitchen like <laughs> I used to when I was 22 <laughs> years old anymore. Yep. I need to think smarter. I need to think as a restaurateur, as, a, as an owner rather than, than than someone who employed in the business. I can't be hands-on, so I need to think about size and for that you need partners to make it work. So, And it makes it easier. And it's fun being you know, in a partnership with other people, 20, 24 years of being, you know, on my own as a sole operator and all of a sudden and making all the decisions, sharing it with other people is really fun and enjoyable. Yeah. They've got to be the right people, but um, yeah, it's really enjoyable. I'm enjoying it. How do you work through that process of understanding if it's the right opportunity
0: or not? Do you, get, do you go off some sort of script in your head or checklist or are you literally going off smell test a bit like how i imagine if you're in your restaurant and you walk in and you can just feel the energy shift if it's good or a bad shift right yep just work off that kind of energy and tell or
1: look at the the size of the venue look a a 35 seater you're gonna have to work real hard to make a buck out of that you need to be doing more than 100 people a day so you need to have that sort of look about it a bit of a view a nice venue that you can fit out and look if it's got a if it's already got the bones it's got a grease trap it's got a, a licensed premises for hospitality it's got a liquor license it's got the major infrastructure in there you're looking for those sorts of things mm. to go into a place and spend two million bucks on someone else's property and then roll the dice again it's, yeah. that's a big thing but if it's got everything there and you can negotiate it really well another good reason for having a lawyer on your on your team yeah and you can negotiate a really good opportunity i think that's how you do it you get a smell for it boss of the place in brisbane when i first went in there i didn't like it at all i had to go back and forth a few times to walk around have a look at the streets have a look at go up go go up there and have a look at it again and again and it just started to make sense and once the three of us got together and started to run some numbers and really see that hey we can actually make this work and this is how we could do it this is what we can do to make it work yeah once I'm very cautious but once we were able to get it all together and then sign the dotted line and off we went it was just no turning back then
0: if I'm to take you back like how did you find out that La Luna was the right opportunity do you often reflect on Knowing that was the right, o- that feeling of that opportunity at that time to how you're
1: making your decisions now. I worked. I came back from overseas and I worked at a place called Two Fish which is owned by Michael Bakash mm-hmm. He's great if you like fish. He's one of the best fish cooks that I know, that I've, I've worked with. Crazier than a cut snake, but he's a lovely guy. I worked around the corner and this the corner the site La Luna Bistro had been Lord Lentil, which was a vegetarian restaurant mm-hmm. for 20 years. Another guy got hold of it, turned it into a restaurant, and it was unsuccessful. And that was about the time I left Michael and. And I think he got he. We had a look at it with him and another guy, and then about a month later, a couple of months later, someone else had gone in there, and then it came up again. But I like the side. It was on a corner which is the important thing for hospitality, it could hold 100 people because I knew the upstairs was available as well. Mm. Um, it, it had a kitchen. It was operating as a restaurant venue, so it had the licensing in there. So that sort of ticked a lot of the boxes for me, and it was probably small enough for me to get in there and, and operate myself. Uh, I needed to do a little bit of work to the place, but it was like, yeah, just roll the dice. I borrowed 100 grand, and wow. borrowed, which is a lot of money in those yeah, days. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I borrowed 100000 and then got it going and spent the next few years paying that off. But yeah, I just, it was something about that place. And I knew the area really well. In fact, my mother and father met and dated each other around that area. They both lived wow. in North Carlton. And there's probably about 200 metres down the road was the fish and chip shop that my father took my mother on, the, on their first date. Wow. Um, just down the road there. So the area has a lot of feeling to me and I just love that part of town.
0: Awesome. Obviously, the focus on meat has been a big part of your career and something you've definitely been known for. Has that been hard to continue to have that focus, especially in the last 10 years as we've gone through vegetarianism and veganism and fake meat and all these different things coming through the industry? Has it been... How have you made sure
1: that you stay true to that initial purpose? Well, all of those non-meat eating things—they're like a small cult that's just over the side. There, it's just like this little thing, this little that pops up every now and again, makes a little bit of noise, and goes back in its little box over there. And it just, it's just—it's fine, but it's over there. The 90, 95 percent of Australians are red-blooded meat-eating. They love their lamb chops, and off they go. It's just that small minority that makes so much bloody noise. <laughs> but yeah, meat's what we love, what we enjoy eating and a lot of people really really enjoy eating good meat which is what I do really well I'm good at that side of things yeah I was actually brought up as a vegetarian my father was a vegetarian half my family there's probably 40 people that are vegetarian in my family wow I've got all the respect we should eat less meat we should be eating more vegetables and if you go eat one piece of meat a week or two three pieces a week that's normal but eating 500 grams steak every day is probably not what we want to do but don't tell anyone it's just between (laughs) you and I but it's just there's so much noise about all this fake meat and stuff yeah whatever these animals are put on the earth for us to eat otherwise they wouldn't be made out of meat would they you know <laughs> yeah, that's very true <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Adrian how do you pick the producers that you work with in regards especially with your meat look I, I have a lot of suppliers that I've had for many years I'll use the my pork supplier Judy Crow. she's Western Plains meat free range pork producers out in just probably an hour west of Geelong and I've been out to the farm a few times I know them really well well, I met her probably 18, 19 years ago when she came to me and said, I'm a pork producer. What can I do for you guys? And I said, I need little baby suckling pigs, six kilos. Mm. And so she started, you know, with that business. And that's what happens. From then I, 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 I buy. Pork from the, from her, the Dobsons are a potato growing family just in the Akron Valley, just north of Hillsville. I've known them for thirty years from other venues that I'd worked in, so they've been supplying me with potatoes. They get delivered once a week. I walk in the door; it's nine in the morning, and they were delivered at five. So you get to know people, and that's the same with a lot of these producers. With my beef, though, I deal with an abattoirs, and I deal with an agent that works inside the abattoirs, and he moves around to different abattoirs. So his job is to see; he might see four. 500 head go past him every day and he'll pick out the one or two for me Wow! so I'll take maybe four or five head of cattle a week so he'll pick them out for me uh, during the week and then they'll go to me so I take the stuff that the butchers don't want because it's so bloody good with plenty of fat on it, lots of fat cover, lots of marbling. Whereas people in a butcher shop, it doesn't look as good where I'll take that because I'm going to dry age it for eight weeks and my butcher, in-house butcher, will break it down and serve it. So that's how I deal with things. Amazing. Mm. If it's it's got a pulse, I can cook. Oh dear. We can go so many ways with that.
0: Um, Is it hard to train chefs to cook the kind of meat that you produce to the stage you actually want it? Because obviously you've got such an amazing product. Is it hard? My point is that maybe not a lot of chefs have dealt with product of that high grade. Is it hard to train them at the start when they come into your kitchens?
1: Look, the teaching, teaching chefs how to cook a piece of meat, whether it's slow cooking, whether it's processing it in certain ways, or whether it's just cooking a steak. It's not that hard to teach them that. That's usually their training encompasses all methods of cookery so they can do that kind of thing. It's to make sure it's done consistently and accurately all the time. There's always going to be little mistakes, but if you've got it nailed 99.5% of the time, that's a good cook to me. What I find is the actual butchery side of it, the breaking down of it, understanding how to utilize certain cuts, to look at a cut and know how to trim it, how to, what's wrong with it and what's right, right with it. Those sorts of things take a while to teach people. And that's often why people come and work with us because they want to learn those things. It's not uncommon for me to have a qualified chef. They've done their three-year apprenticeship it's three years now, not four. Mm-hmm. To you put a chicken, a chicken on the bench in front of them and tell them to break it down, and it's like they take a bloody chainsaw to the thing. It's just oh my god, please stop. So you have to start from the beginning. But their skills, that's why they come to me to learn those skills. And we have our own full-time in-house butcher, and all of my my chefs work with him. And he's he's of my vintage. So if he if they muck it up, he'll tell them. He's he has no uh, he has no filter. He'll tell them <laughs> and he'll scream and yell at them if they haven't cleaned the place properly. It's, he's he's a great. Guy and he's that's why they come to, to learn that's what you're there for it's a skills based industry so if you can learn if you know how to cook it great but if we can show you how to trim it and how to get the the best out of it and how to utilize all those little bits that are left over mm. that's the real skill so you put the two together and that's how it works is there a reason why you haven't done a butchery before as a retail brand yeah look uh, we we looked into it we we, we toyed it, toyed around with it for for a little bit and I just. Yeah, just no butchery is a different thing altogether. What what I would say, Angelo is he's the Maori butcher. It's I would call it chef butchery because he's finishing it off for chefs rather than putting it on trays with a piece of the plastic parsley on it. It's a different thing. Look, if I had a few more venues to, to service, I would maybe think about that sort of thing. But once you go down that path, you're the governance is under another body, so you mm. become a butcher shop. Look, I don't think Angelo really wants to ha- open a butcher shop. But really need another venue, another venture, I think, unless I'm going to throw everything into it. I would love to. I think there's some stuff to do it, but there's some guys that are doing it already Mm. and I'd have to throw everything into it to make it work. I'm just, that's the sort of person I am. I have to do everything. But yeah, it's not really my thing at the moment. Although now that you've mentioned it, it's stuff to put that (laughs) spark back in mind. What have you done? Sorry, Adrian. Yeah, I'm thinking thinking about it again. Adrian's been, yeah. But look, there there are some really good suppliers that I use that are able to give me exactly what they want. They have a, a larger ability to, to source different things. So I use their facilities. Yeah, that's it. that seems to work better for me.
0: I was going to ask you, one of the questions I was going to ask you today is like well, the wisdom that you give people for starting a venue now. The one thing I've heard today many times now is I think one of the secrets of your success is long-term relationships. Someone who's been with you for 23 years, working for you, Angela Butcher, these supplies that you've known for 25 or 30 years, I think from an outsider's perspective, that's part of the reason why you've been so successful in La Luna for 25 years and doing amazing things other than it being an amazing person yourself. How do you keep those relationships going and momentum and, and making sure that people stay around and want to work with you?
1: I'm a really nice guy. You are a really nice guy. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know. For me, if you build a relationship with, with – let's take suppliers, for example. Mm. Once you get someone who knows what you want, there, there's no bo- – bullshit it, yeah they know what you want and yeah. and they do their best to deliver that's a good supplier i'll pay them you pay them on time yep. they deliver good quality there's no argument every now and again if there's an issue quick little phone call problem solved i don't have to argue with anyone if i've been through that before and those people you get rid of them quickly and i think it's that respect thing they respect me and my business and i respect them and their business and i take the time i'll i'll I have visited all of my major suppliers I go there they know them I, I know the bosses they've got my number and I've got their number so often the chef oh I'm having trouble getting hold of this rep for that hang on a second let me call John up bang done finished yep. and I like to be have that relationship one pay on time is a good thing and, and over the 25 years, I've had some tough moments where, you know, where I haven't been able to pay my bills. The first thing I do is ring them up and say, hey, I'm having a tough month or two. I can't, can you cover me for a month or two? And 99.9% of the time it's Richard, don't worry about a thing. You've always paid on time. before. You're one of us. We know you're going to pay your bills. And they've helped me through it. And then the first thing I do is, is pay them. And that's the thing I say, if I fall apart, go bankrupt, I will pay you my last my, my debt to the last 25 cents a week, whatever it is, I'll pay it off. And that's, What I've tried to do. And if you're honest, like that's the way it comes. And with staff, just be straight. Don't scream and yell, just be straight. If there's an issue, like you're coming in late, I'll sit you down. You're coming in late, it's your problem. You deal with it now. If you want to continue, this is the way it works. I've had people working with me, Linda, 24 years, Angelo, 18 years, Lozzie's been working 17 years. So I I, I make it hard to leave in that North Carlton kind of way. (laughs) (laughs) you, you, You empower people. I need these people. I look after them. I respect them. I show respect to them amongst the other co-workers. So, you know, when you do that, they're comfortable. They're safe. Make it safe for them. Make it a place where they can do all the things they want to do and build the business with you and it makes your life easy you know, it's all about people if you can manage people i think i think that's what it works one of the things i learned in my c- colorful career is when you work well I'm working with bastards people are yelling screaming you see it on tv who wants to work in that kind of environment Mm. it's a horrible place Mm. there's no screaming in my places there's no bullying there's none of that stuff if there is but there has been from time to time I pull it up straight away they're sitting down with me immediately I will not tolerate any of that crap and most of my most of the management team that run are are all females so they run the ship so any of the boys get out of line if there's any any, any sexist thing going on they chop it straight away in fact it's the girls that are the worst they're probably swearing more but so we can keep control of that stuff from the start on the way in this is that this is how we operate while they're working there everyone sees how we operate so if you do step out of line you stand out and then on the way out they usually leave with a lovely handshake and, and off they go and then hopefully they'll pass that sort of way of working onto to other people do you think that's one thing about the hospitality team that you've got been so good is the fact you do have diversity in leadership? Yeah, no, because I've got girls that do everything. You've got guys in st- too busy with their egos trying to show the everyone how good they are, mm. where girls just get on with it. And I, I just find, and I really like that, especially with front of house, that soft, gentle, warm, fuzzy feeling. It's like my grandmother, my, my nonna, with her arms around you with a big yeah. hug and kiss. I really like that style, and I like that style of leadership. Yeah, I've, I've worked in places where you've got a whole lot of blokes at the top, and it's just people just swinging their egos around. It's mm-hmm. like, guys, just take it in easy mm. relax we're here it's hospitality it's it's food service we're not going to save anyone's lives we're just going to give them a little bit of pleasure for a couple of hours that's yes. it just enjoy it
0: yeah what kind of what kind of hospitality venues is bullish about in formats at the moment? Like obviously, when you started, you've got a 110 sort of uh, seat venue. I see it's come full circle. Now we've got we've had a lot of bigger venues for a long period of time. I feel now it's getting, especially in Melbourne, getting to smaller, unique, specialist kind of venues. Almost coming back to what La Luna obviously is now, which is a an amazing meat driven venue. Are you most excited about? those kind of formats where it's 100 to 150 kind of seats or are you thinking it's
1: going to go bigger? You think it's going to go smaller? Where do you think it's going to go? Look, look, I think mathematically larger venues make money. Yep. Small venues, you work, you have to be 100% capacity all the time and charging a bit of money. Small venues tend to turn over. A lot. Yeah, they're great and they're fun and they're great for young chefs to cut their teeth and front of house people to, to get going. But for the for long term you need to be doing that hundred people a day to be able to pay your bills and get on with it. Mm. I do love it though. I do go out a lot and some of those small venues you've got a couple of young chefs in there that are really at the top of their game they're doing beautiful stuff i'll make sure i rip off all of it yeah. <laughs> I, i'll, do, I'll yes. take photos of it and i try yeah. and just because you always pick up you always learn from them and i really think that's a great way to cut their teeth and and i really like that creative side of it you can be creative if you've only got 30 people mm-hmm. you can do really beautiful stuff once you start getting into the 100 plus you have to be smart you have to be one two three on a plate and out it goes it's a lot simpler and really consistent where the small stuff is just beautiful and i'm loving what i'm saying awesome what kind of legacy do you think you're trying to leave the industry with? I don't know. I never thought about a legacy. Look, what I'm a tradesman. I'm a chef. I'm the sh- in, in, in the trade of cookery. So my job is to pass on my skills. And I've amassed skills in a few different areas. What I'd like to be able to do is to be able to, and I do that sometimes. I'll go into a restaurant and there's one of my guys or girls that have worked for me. And so you can see it on the plate. You can mm. see the technique and the skill. For me, if I can do my little bit to to help other chefs and other hospitality people to realise you can do it, you can have fun, you can enjoy it. There's a life for you. You can make a living out of it. If I could do that, it'd be great. When I'm a crusty old salty old bloke with my little walking stick, nothing would give me more pleasure than to go into a little restaurant and someone to come up and pat me on the back and Richo, I used to work for you. And this beer's on me. To mm. me, that's a beautiful thing. I'd like that in my retirement. Anyone listening, that's what I'd like in my retirement. <laughs> so please, you just, just a glass of wine or a beer or something. It's just <laughs> And, and that, that'd that be nice. And, and to see those skills and chefs and chefs being being regarded and respected more, I think, and that's coming through with a pace. People are getting paid more, which is yeah. great. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. It's You're working reasonable hours and you're getting paid for what you are working. Jeez, I, I remember filling out a timesheet for 38 hours <laughs> and I'd fill that out on a Wednesday. I'd have to do the whole timesheet and I yeah. knew I had another 30 coming and I'd get paid for 38 hours. And, and those days are long gone. And it, it, But it's happened at a time where I'm now paying the wages. <laughs> yes. So it's, it's a bitters- happened the other time. Yeah, it's a bittersweet <laughs> thing. But it's finally the chefs are not being flogged like they used to and being expected to work heaps of hours for a crappy pay now it's it's getting a lot fairer it means you have to run your business smarter and you need to be you need to be fairer with everyone and that's the way it should be i totally agree
0: my last question to you is what are you excited about over the next 12 months like you've got these new venues you're a part of you've got a cracking business it's 25 years an amazing time
1: what's what are you excited about for the next 12 months Look, I'm excited about just keeping the six venues that I've got, just keeping all them locked down and actually I'm just going to take on another one. But um, I I keep keeping all them locked down um, and running them properly. Look, we've expanded quickly. I just want to make it all work and I want the people to be able to manage it all properly. We want to... I want to be in this place next year to say saying to you we nailed it we've got our numbers right the people are good the food's good everything's moving on nicely that's exciting to me I also want to be able to tell you that I've had plenty of time to relax and enjoy myself mm. this is what I've been doing the last year I get up in the morning take the dogs for a walk tidy up I'm, I make the bed in the morning I'm that sort of person tidy yeah. I go have a coffee walk around the garden and usually by about 10 o'clock I start taking calls and usually by about 11 o'clock 12 o'clock I'm in the office I want to still do that. I still want to enjoy my life and enjoy my own personal life as well as manage these other venues and the people. It's actually not the venues, it's the people. Managing them and just ring them up. Everything good? Yeah, good, thanks, Chief. No worries. Off you go. See you later. That's it. That would be really good for me. Awesome.
0: Adrian, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Linked up in the show notes of this podcast is every way you can engage with Adrian and his venues. Adrian Richardson, thanks so much for your time. Absolute pleasure thanks again for tuning to this episode of principle of hospitality we hope you've really enjoyed it please comment and share this podcast with your friends in the industry that's the way we can keep doing what we're doing if more people listen along until next week stay well everyone Hey there, Po listeners. Let's take a quick break to talk about pay.com.au, a game changer in the payment solutions arena. Are you a business owner bogged down by a cumbersome payment process and you know reward points? Well, pay.com.au has got you covered. With their platform, you can process payments faster, easier, and with better rewards than ever before, earning points with every business payment. Whether you're paying invoices, employees, your BAS statements or simply looking to manage your business expenses more efficiently, pay.com.au is your go-to platform. Turn your reward points into business class flights or gift cards to incentivize and retain your staff. Check them out at pay.com.au and take your payment game to the next level.